I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and my guest today is the great Justin Ray. Justin is the head of content at 21st Group, and you can find his writing on The Athletic and PGATour.com. He also has a very popular Twitter account, at Justin Ray Golf. And what Justin offers both on Twitter and in his writing is a unique ability, I think, to use numbers to tell stories. Obviously, there are a lot of people out there who can scrounge up statistics, but Justin is just so skilled at finding the kinds of stats that no one else thinks to look for and then presenting them in a way that's illuminating and fun. So I thought he would be a great person to talk to not only about the recent Masters, but also about the major storylines on the PGA Tour so far this year and the big questions we should be asking about the rest of the season. All right, let's get to it. Here is Justin Ray. So, Justin, as anyone who follows you on Twitter knows, you have this unique ability to track down really interesting facts and numbers that no one else has. So without giving away any secrets, what is your basic process? How do you find what you find? I'm sure there's a spreadsheet involved that's under lock and key, but uh, you know, how do you go about finding the stuff that you find? Uh, I wouldn't say under lock and key. It's not super secretive. I try to share as much um, as much methodology and, and stuff that I have as I possibly can. It's kind of a difficult thing to articulate. You know, I've been doing it um, for a long time now. I mean, since you know, I was in ESPN's research department starting in the summer of 07 when I was still in college. Um, and I still find it difficult to articulate the way that you go about watching sports. You know, I'm always kind of trying to pick out storylines and numbers and things that I think might be interesting, regardless of what sport I'm watching. So, I mean, we might get into December and uh, we're long removed from significant golf being played. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting up watching an NBA game and I might get on basketball reference and try to answer a question myself. So it's kind of a hardwired thing for me at this point, regardless of how I'm watching it. But in terms of like a process, I mean, it just depends. You know, you see you see things going into an event um, and, you know, whether it's whether I'm writing an article or it's just something that I think is interesting and I want to dig into, I'm just always trying to ask questions, right? I'm trying to ask, you know, see what's going on, see something interesting and don't just accept that for what it is. Try to contextualize it, try to come up with a way to um, tell you why something has happened and not just, you know, how frequently it's happened in the past. So um, I'm always kind of just always keep asking questions, right? You know, there's the... Um, I sound cheesy, but the, the line from Ted Lasso about being curious, um, I think that has Not some, judgmental. It has, yeah, that has applications in a, across a lot of things, right? Like, um, and I think you can come up with it, the more you dig, the more interesting stuff you can come up with. And um, I've been able to build out some pretty cool resources over the years, just somehow turning what I do into a job, into a profession, into a career. So, um, you know, there's a lot of tools that I've built myself. Uh, the PGA Tour has a lot of tools as well. The LPGA is expanding what they're capable of doing, and, and my company's helping helping with that. So um, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to to articulate the process of answering the questions. But the number one thing I'll say is just be curious and be ready, willing to get your you know digital hands dirty digging into the information. Yeah, well, I get the sense that you know when you're watching a telecast, this is just the image that's in my mind, but. You hear a storyline come up, uh, a commentator mentions something, and I imagine Justin Ray sort of thinking, wait a minute, is that true? How can, how can we contextualize that or how can we prove that through numbers or what kind of story can we tell using numbers to show that? Yeah, the commentator doesn't even really have to say it. So I'll take, for instance, something that happened, uh, we're recording this Thursday the 14th, so the first round of the RBC Heritage. Um, Corey Connors makes a hole in one. You see that video on Twitter or you're watching PGA Tour Live. Okay, how many does he have? He has five in his career. How many players have five aces 
on the PGA Tour in the last six years. And it's nobody. It's just him. So you basically you take step one and then you can kind of like expand beyond it until you, you know, you don't want to get so into the minutia that it's not interesting. There's always a balance there. But there's always a bigger story to be told and more context that you can add into just seeing like, Ball goes in hole, yay! Like we can we can actually like dig into it a little bit, and there's that part too, which is exciting. And I'm that kind of sports fan as well, where there's still visceral, you know, uh, reactions, and I still enjoy it. But I love just digging into it and trying to coming up with coming up with a way that I think can make it a more interesting experience for other fans, for players, writers, whatever it is, because that's that's what I find interesting. The the point you're making gets at why your account is so great to follow, especially during tournaments. And that's because sometimes golf tournaments, golf telecasts can kind of seem like this series of unconnected golf shots. It's what, that's what a tournament is. It's 144 different stories or a hundred, however many guys are in the field and they're all happening at different points in the day. And there's a zillion different data points. Right. And, and that's and that Corey Connors thing is like, OK, that's an interesting golf shot. The ball went in the hole. We're always excited when that happens. But so I didn't know that he had had so many holes in one it, it's not a significant like it's not going to be predictive of future performance for Corey connors but in 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 that moment you can add depth to that and say like oh okay i can have a little bit more context and maybe it enhances your understanding or enjoyment of what you're watching so for those who don't know what's your background in sports media you mentioned before that you were working in the espn research department how did you work your way up to kind of occupying the role that you currently occupy in the media landscape? Yeah. So I went to the University of Missouri Journalism School and um, I basically, I wanted to be Dan Patrick when I was 19 and quickly realized- Who, who didn't want to be Dan Patrick? There were, <laughs> I, there quickly realized there were about 70, like 75 other dudes who wanted the exact same <laughs> job, like in the room I was in at Mizzou at that point. So, um, I, but I did get a research internship at ESPN when I was still in college. And the process for getting that that job was more difficult than anything I've ever done since because it was an enormous pool of applicants. Um, and the process for getting it was really interesting because you just have an ESPN research manager call you in the middle of the day. And I remember once I was like walking from, you know, like an ink, like a, a, a literature class to like, I don't know, Spanish or something when I'm, because I'm like a sophomore or junior in, in college and they just start talking to you about sports. Like, so how many members of the 500 home run club can you name off the top of your head? What do you think about the bullpens in the AL West this season? Like, talk about the secondaries in the NFC South. Like, just just peppering you with, like, questions. Like, you know, how how many members of uh, the uh, top 10 in goal scored in NHL history can you name? And so they're really getting a, a feel for, like, okay, because that, that room – of researchers at ESPN, it was so fun to be a part of because it is a bunch of absolute sports crazy people just like me. Um, and so anyway, I was fortunate enough to get that opportunity, turn that into a full-time gig when I got out of school. Um, and when I got there, I kind of saw a niche role there for me because look, I'm, I grew up playing baseball, playing golf, um, basketball. Um, I, I played everything. I played baseball most seriously, even more so than golf. And I've always been a big sports fan across the board. But I got into that room and kind of saw like, ah, you know what, I might be the guy who likes golf more than anybody in this room. And so I kind of saw a need to expand what they did from a golf perspective at a pretty pretty early on in my career there. I was given the opportunity to write for ESPN.com when I was 24, which I don't know how that happened because I was, I was way too young. I had no business doing that. But the golf editor at the time, Kevin McGuire, is a really nice guy. And he gave me the opportunity and gave me a platform um, I kind of grew into the golf role there. Um, and then in 2011, um, the ESPN uh, launched a network that you may be familiar with called Longhorn Network, completely devoted to the University of Texas. Now, this appealed to me because I'm from Texas. I'm from a group in Houston. And they were like, do you want to move to Austin and get a pay raise? And I was like, yes, both of those things sound good to me as I lived in Connecticut and was you know making nothing right out of school. So, and, and on top of that, you know, in the summers during the biggest golf tournaments of the year, there's no University of Texas athletics going on. So I could still work on golf and still have that be part of my career. So moved down there, um, was there for a few years, um, and then kind of Golf Channel called me. And around that time in 2011 was when I kind of started the Twitter account. And it was more of a, a thing I did on my off days. It wasn't something that was a primary focus. Um, but then, you know, kind of got the attention of folks at Golf Channel and 
Um, as that grew and expanded, um, I, I got a job with Golf Channel in 2014. Loved my time there. I got to go to all the majors, all the big events. Um, became, you know, was was the researcher on on live from uh, Golf Central day in day out. Um, and turned, you know, I was doing all sports, and I was able to completely focus and kind of put all my chips in with golf. So, um, 2019, um, I, you know, some guys who I had met at the Ryder Cup a few years before. Um, originally, 15th Club was the name of the company. Um, they had done some analytics for the European Ryder Cup team, and I got to meet them. They came and talked to some of us at Golf Channel, and there was mutual respect each way. Um, I was really interested in what they did. Um, and then in 2019, we kind of shared a vision for what media could be and what the company could expand to in the future moving forward. And I love the agility of the company is the phrase I like to use. Um, you know, media rights are a tenuous thing as I learned throughout my career. You know, I, I was, when I got to ESPN, they had the U S open and then they lost the U S open to Fox and they basically made it sound like we're getting out of the golf business. And then years later, I'm at 21st group and they're on ESPN plus every week. So look, it's, it, it moves around, it fluctuates. And if you're not tied to one media organization, um, like I am, I get to contribute to a lot of different places and work with different media outlets, manufacturers. Um, you know, I write for The Athletic every big tournament now. Um, I'm able to kind of move around and be in a lot of different places. And so anyway, that was a really long winded explanation of, of my road. But no, it's perfect. That's kind of how I got here. All right. So getting into some of the nitty gritty here, you often use strokes gained statistics in your analysis. I would imagine that you have been called upon on occasion to describe what strokes gained is to somebody who doesn't know much about it. And so what's your usual way of helping someone understand who doesn't know anything about strokes gained uh, to get what this is all about? Yeah, I think of it in the the best way I try to describe it is if someone's never heard of it before, they say, say I'm talking to my uncle or somebody who has played golf all his life, but what's the strokes gain? I don't really understand it. The best way I can explain its benefit is to talk about it through the lens of putting, right? So that's the original way it was rolled out for the PGA Tour. And I think that's the most, you know, apt way to describe its benefit, right? So say you've got two players and um, they've, one guy is 15 feet away from the hole one guy's hit the hit his approach three feet away from the hole, right? Well, the three foot putt is a one putt, but the guy, the 15 footer goes in as well, right? So they've each made a putt. One was significantly more difficult than the other, right? So what we want to do is assign a value to how much the 15 footer benefited one player compared to the three footer for the other player, right? So the three footer is worth point, I'm making this up, but 0.01, right? On your strokes gain number. 15-footer is worth half a shot. It's much more significant. So then you add all that up at the end of the day, and if a guy, if player A who made that 15-footer, say he gained three strokes putting on the field, that is more descriptive of his, you know, how well he putted that day than player B who, let's say, the two guys shot the same score. They both shot 68, but player B had negative one strokes gained putting. Let's say, but he hit, he hit, 10 approach shots to 12 feet or closer, right? And so the strokes gain value is able to kind of quantify different, you know, your proficiency in different disciplines of whatever the round was. So it's a, it's a, ultimately you're trying to shoot a score, right? And both players, that 68 was four under par and their strokes gain total number is how much they beat the field average by that day. And let's say the field average was 73. So they both gained five strokes against the field that day. But one player A got two and a half of his five strokes through putting, two strokes from off the tee, and half a stroke with his approach player. Right? I'm just making the sum of it all up. The other player gained way more shots with his approach play. Uh, let's say he gained four shots with his approach play, half a shot putting, half a shot off the tee. So basically, you get to the end point of your two scores, but what you're able to do is describe you know, the quality of play in terms of, you know, how well a player did something specifically on their way to the 68. Hopefully that made sense. I, I, oh, absolutely. That, that's a great way of describing it. I, I think seeing it through the lens of putting is great because what's the previous way that we understood putting performance? And that's just the number of putts. Right. Oh, yeah, 23 putts. Both of those guys in your example had one putts. Right. And he had to get up and down. And let's say he chipped his tail off and had to get up and down 
10 times, then that's going to impact the number of putts you had. So right. I, I do want to say too, that like there is still a place for some traditional statistics. Like I like to compare it to baseball a lot. Like, you know, we have uh, baseball was so far ahead of the other sports in terms of introducing advanced kind of numbers. And I don't know if it's because broadcasting the sport is so conducive to need to fill airtime or people, you know, just the proclivities of the people who follow the game or whatever it might be. Also the, the availability historically of baseball numbers is so much bigger than a lot of the I other mean, their stat heads have traditionally followed baseball. There have been a lot of, I mean, just looking at the box scores and in the numbers that that seems to be a mindset for. Right. For and people. they've been putting baseball box scores in American newspapers for a hundred, what, a hundred years, 120 years. So we didn't get, they used to put the golf results. They'd only put the guys who made the cut in the newspaper. So we yeah. didn't even have like, you know, if Jimmy Demerit missed a cut, you wouldn't even have that, you know, the week before a big tournament. So anyway, um, no, but I like to compare it to baseball because um, in terms of there's still value. Like if a guy has a 22 game hitting streak, look, that's a really old school way of measuring something, right? He has at least one hit in 22 straight games. That's still interesting. That's still an interesting way to tell a story where the same place you go, okay, this guy's hit, 21 straight greens in regulation. That is, that's not some super detailed new age data piece, but it can be an interesting bit of the story, right? So there's still, I still think there's a place for, you know, not everything has to be, you know, strokes gained for it to be valuable still. I know that it's, it's the most valuable tool we have in terms of evaluating how a player performs at this point, but I still think there's some value in some of the old school stuff. And just to bring that point home, the the example you mentioned of the guy who hits a bunch of greens in regulation in a row, that is an interesting thing to state on its own. It's like, oh, this is kind of incredible. It's unusual. But then what strokes gained might allow you to do is to look into how those greens in regulation were achieved. Were they achieved because this player is incredibly accurate with irons or did the player achieve this because he has been or she has been incredibly great off the tee and has had a bunch of wedges from the fairway into the green. And strokes gained allows you to kind of portion out, not perfectly, it's not a perfect stat, but to portion out uh, what parts of the game the player is using to get those results. And to go back to the baseball analogy, the guy who has a 21-game hitting streak, you know, a single in the eighth inning when you're down 10-1 to doesn't have the same value of you know, a three run homer in the fifth to put your team up three zero, right? Like there's different value in that. So baseball has metrics that can evaluate things like that too. Whereas, you know, the consecutive GIR thing, let's say he's hit in, in his 20 straight greens in regulation, 10 have been 35 feet away from the hole. Well, that doesn't help you make a ton of birdies because it's very difficult to make those putts. Right. But let's say, Another player has hit 70% of his greens in regulation in that span, but he has six shots to 10 feet or closer. His strokes gain approach might be better because it was more valuable in terms of shooting a score than the other player with the longer greens in regulation streak. So I always try to tie it back to baseball. Maybe it's just because it, I'm a huge baseball fan and it's the way I've, you know, it was my first love as a sport growing up, but. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of analogies there between the two sports that make it easier for some casual sports fans to understand the new age golf metrics. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast invites you to discover the greatness within Elijah Craig small batch. Elijah Craig bourbon never settles for less than the best. Every bottle of their award-winning small batch carries a signature warm spice and subtle smoke flavor. It is exceptionally smooth and well-balanced, I like to drink it on the rocks. I'm a pretty simple guy that way, but I just like the cool bite of a chilled drink combined with the warmth of the bourbon flavor. I get complex aromas of vanilla beans, sweet fruit, and fresh mint. The palate is pleasantly woody with accents of spice, smoke, and nutmeg. Elijah Craig won double gold at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition last year and the Tried and True Award from the Ultimate Spirits Challenge in 2020. Pick up a bottle today or order online at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com. And save $5 on a bottle of Elijah Craig delivered right to your door with code FRIEDEGG5. That's fried egg and the number five, all one word. The Fried Egg is brought to you by Elijah Craig Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky. 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. 
Well, why don't we get to some recent happenings uh, in professional golf? Obviously, we're coming off the Masters, Scotty Scheffler's victory at the Masters. And so, you know, just to put Scheffler's victory in context, what were some of your favorite numbers and notes coming out of that tournament that, that can kind of communicate to people what Scheffler achieved? Yeah, probably my favorite note maybe doesn't connotate achievement as much as as how rare kind of what his run has been like over these last few months. Um, you know, after he got to number one in the match play and I was like, okay, he's not going to play San Antonio. So he's going to make his first start at the Masters as the number one player in the world. I mean, that, that's no way that's happened before, right? That's crazy. Well, you go back through the years and the only other time it had happened was in 1991. And the week between, the week or two weeks between the Players' Championship and the Masters, Ian Woosnam's number in 91 moved up to number one. So he made his first start as world number one at the Masters. There's so many coincidences and things that go into that. Like a player has to be on his ascent as a player at that time of year. And there's just so many factors you can imagine go into that. So I thought it was crazy that it had happened before. Not only that, but Ian Woosnam won. And so you think, oh, there's no way Scotty Scheffler is going to come here. It's the first time he's played number one, as hot as he is. Like, that's a lot to ask for a guy in that position for the first time. And, of course, he wins the tournament. So I thought that was crazy because it's just there's so many things that have to happen for that to even be a possibility. And then for the guy, now we've had it happen two times where a guy is number one for the first time, teeing it up. Usually it's, you know, some event in Asia in November or you know, uh, the uh, your rocket mortgages of the world, no offense, but it's not the Masters, right? And he steps up in his first start and does exactly what Ian Woosnam did 31 years earlier, which is win in his first start as number one. I thought that was crazy. Um, another one which kind of speaks to uh, a little bit of the fact that, like, in the guys that didn't do this, um, and you'll, get, you'll understand what I'm saying when I get to the, the note itself, but... So Scotty now in, on this PGA Tour season, and it's in 2022 alone. There was no wraparound season wins. Four wins on this PGA Tour season, including the Masters, walking away from Augusta National. Jack Nicklaus never did that. Tiger Woods never did that. The last guy to do that was Arnold Palmer in 1960, which I thought was crazy because you think as rapidly as Tiger won, Jack had a lot of, had some early season wins in his career. You think this has got to have happened at some point where a guy was red hot, got to his fourth win or fifth win, which is what Arnie did in his case. It was his fifth win of the season in 1960. But no one had done that in that span, which I thought was remarkable that, that you can go back that long and you can get through Tiger and Jack and their 11 Masters titles between them. And no one had had four wins and the green jacket in the season walking away from Augusta National. Now Scotty's done it for the first time since Arnold Palmer. Did, did you mention that Jimmy Demerit had done that a couple of times before? I I remember seeing this. Yeah, De, Demerit had done that. I think twice. Okay, got in like the thirties and and well, yeah, yeah pre World War Two, like a long time. Right. Ago. So it but was, when the when the PGA Tour wasn't the modern PGA Tour. In fact, when Arnold did it, it, it wasn't yet the modern PGA. And that's Tour the thing either. with a lot of these historical notes is that basically at some point. I think it was in the early, may have been the early 80s or mid 80s, the PGA Tour basically were like, okay, we've got to have some kind of record book here and kind of modernize and set up the system. So they went through and basically deemed what were PGA Tour wins because it didn't look like now with, you know, an official schedule and a building and an office and executives. And it was was basically a big series of, you know, traveling circus tournaments, which sounds sounds kind of fun, honestly, because it was so, you know, off the hip in a lot of ways. But um. Yeah. No. The, at some point, they went and established. Okay, this was a win, and this was a win, and and so I mean, there's a great article that um, a friend of yours and mine, Sean Martin, wrote years ago, um, where Sam Snead thought he had way more than 82 wins. Like he thought he should have been credited with with far more than the total they gave him, and in, in some cases, kind of arbitrary because like one of Sam Snead's wins is a four way tie for first, and one of them and there's some team <laughs> events and. Anyway, it's really interesting read. If you, I, I, I don't, I can't tell you what the link is, but hopefully you can find it. So it's a I'll good track read. That down, yeah. Give you some context on that, but yeah, no, the PGA Tour did not look like that. And the other one, which I love that I was able to get this as quickly as I did, is because we're getting you're getting Scotty's about to win the Masters. It's inevitable. He's walking up the last hole, and then the guy four putts the last hole. Like who does that? So I had to find as quickly as I could 
if there had ever been anybody to four-putt the 72nd green of a win. So the PGA Tour has this data going back 40 seasons now, which they always say, you know, a little inside the beltway thing. If you ever hear since 1983 on any graphics while you're watching golf, that has no significance other than that's when they started tracking it. So we're finally at the point where 2022 is the 40th season in that gap. So I'm able to say last 40 seasons. But anyway, the only other guy in the last 40 PGA Tour seasons to four-putt the 72nd hole and win, David Tom's 2003 Wachovia Championship. I don't know if that bank even exists anymore. <laughs> um, but it was, at, it was at Quail Hollow. He made an eight on the last hole, played hockey on the final green for a little bit. And ended up winning. He was running away with the golf tournament. So, but that the be able to give that context, I always think is cool because um, the speed at which you're able to come up with it, kind of, you know, it's not not that it impresses people, but it's just a cool thing to be able to draw from. And go, oh, this has happened before. So, it 100% impresses me. I can't I I can't imagine even where you might draw that from, but that that is really cool it's not some kind of look i'm not like rain man like saying these things <laughs> you didn't memory. have that one like, off the top of your head and i didn't i do remember <laughs> because i looked up something similar at some point about the eight to finish the tournament it's like oh okay yeah that kind of makes sense but yeah no it's just knowing where to look and having done this for a living for a long time all right so uh, scotty scheffler's story is an interesting one because i think that there is a divide between avid fans of golf and somewhat more casual fans of golf in their perception of Scotty Scheffler and his emergence. Because those of us who follow the game closely knew that Scotty Scheffler was an absolute stud. Did we know he was going to win four of six tournaments all of a sudden in 2022, including the Masters? No. But we knew who this guy was and that he was a big-time player. So, could you give me a sense for what some of the signs were before this year that Scotty Scheffler was coming? Yeah. Well, first of all, you look at a guy with his pedigree and having won at every level. Like you win a U.S. junior amateur, which he did. Um, you, you know, just prolific junior career winning all over the place. Um, that that has a lot of value. Um, that you know, if, if you've got because if you follow the amateur game and you've we've heard about Scotty Scheffler for. Years and years, if you follow amateur golf, you know you knew that he had the winning resume behind him. Um, that this kind of breakout would make sense. And then, you know, once he got to the Corn Ferry Tour, he, you know, it didn't take him long to get to the PGA Tour. So it, the the success he had there, winning a couple times on the Corn Ferry Tour, you knew he had the ability to close out. Um, he just basically, you know, he had a lot of really great underlying. Uh, performance metrics going into this season that suggested that he probably should have won at least once already coming into this season. I think our um, 21st group's performance index expected wins at him entering the season at, I think, a little over one, maybe like 1.2. So, you know, it had predicted that he probably, based on his quality of play, should have won at some point um, coming into the year. Um, And honestly, like I was kind of looking at his numbers coming into the Masters and I thought to myself, if he hadn't ripped off these three wins and five starts, he would be kind of a trendy pick anyway because of the way he performed in major championships. I think he had six straight top 20s, three straight top 10s in the majors coming into the Masters this year. Um, he he basically, to go, this run where he's kind of broken out and won these four tournaments, he's gone from a neutral PGA Tour average putter to a top 20 putter in the game. And he already had all the different you know, the, he's a great driver of the ball. His approach plays really good. Um, just balanced through the bag. He just wasn't a very, you know, he was a pretty average putter by PGA Tour standards. And now here over these last six starts, he's, I think he's like ninth or 10th on tour in that span in strokes game putting per round. So um, he was able to kind of find that next gear and it's, it's really all he needed, you know, you, to make a Ryder Cup team before you win a PGA Tour event, you know, you got to have a pretty unbelievable pedigree and um, the high finishes all over the place. And, you know, it's we've talked a lot about just in the golf world the last five or six years. Tony Finau kind of being that example of a guy who performs great week in and week out, but you know the casual fan might say, "Oh, he's only won. He hasn't won in five years, or now he's only won twice in the last six years." And you're like, "Nah, actually, like if you look at his body of work over the last six, seven seasons, he's one of the best players on the PGA Tour. Um, it's really hard to win. It's a, it's really hard to win um, because you can have, an, let's take Will Zalatoris at Torrey Pines, have an unbelievable week there, a guy who's uber-talented, should break through and win at any point, but Luke List plays out of his mind tee to green and 
and snatches the win from you. So it, that can happen. I remember Luke List putting well that that week too. Didn't Luke List uh, putt? A, yeah, he, a bit so out he, of his had, mind? he had a great. He was kind of the sneaky DFS T to green guy for like six months going into that, and then it all came together that week. But the broader point is that like, there's always going to be somebody who finds that that hot week that might be able to you know stop somebody who has a lot of the underlying numbers that say that they would be able to win otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm zeroing in on the putting because you mentioned that in your uh, description of Scotty Scheffler's game this year, that his improvement in putting is a big part of what accounts for his improvement overall, his, his kind of breakout in the early part of the year. Now, putting is notoriously fickle, right? We know that putting hot streaks don't tend to last. And so I wonder, is there a sustainability question about Scotty Scheffler's performance recently? Well, there's always a question of sustainability when you're this good, but statistically speaking, he's also improved his approach play numbers. Um, I don't know if he's making different decisions since Ted Scott's gone on the bag um, or if there's something he's found that's giving him, you know, uh, you know, a different reason why he's got better strokes gain approach numbers during the span, um, but they're better this season too. So I think overall he's found, you know, found another gear to, for lack of a better term, statistically, that's going to make him, you know, consistently. I don't know if he's, he's not going to win two times out of every three starts. I don't think we can expect that. But if he can, if he can get in the kind of rarefied air where, let's say, he just picks off two more wins this season, not even necessarily a major. I mean, the last guy to win six and a major in the same season was Tiger in 2007. Like, it's really hard to do. So if he maintains this kind of pace, I mean, that's, I don't, I say that kind of pace, and I know we, Staying near the top of the world ranking, whether it's number one for a long period of time or in the top five, um, I could definitely see that happening. Yeah, well, the number of wins here, as you're saying, is is so impressive because, like, you know, Tiger reeled off six or seven win seasons a couple of times in, in his career. Uh, Vijay Singh had a season where he won a huge number of tournaments. But when you look at, you know, the past decade or so – even when players are in dominant form, as Jordan Spieth was in 2015, as Jason Day was for a period, as Rory McIlroy was for a period, none of them really posted that like seven or eight win season. And I'm not asking you to look up for a statistic, right? I'm kind of putting you on the spot. But if if Scheffler gets to gets to six or seven, that just you know, major or not, that plane hasn't happened in a while, right? The last guy to win five, uh, six or more times in a season on the PGA Tour was Tiger in 2009. And the last guy to win six or more, including a major, was Tiger in 07. Like, you've got to go back to the year you mentioned, like, VJ. Um, and then in even, like, the era before Tiger, it didn't happen very often. So, like, there's a handful of seasons, like, you know, 1990, I got it out in front of me, 1995, Greg Norman and Lee Jansen had three wins that led the PGA Tour. Um, 91, eight players won twice. Like, it, there's not a lot of those big runaway type huge seasons that that you know where a guy rattles off lots of wins it just once again it'll speak to just how unbelievable tiger was at his at his peak where um you know there's this separation factor i looked up this number today and i thought it was it speaks to you know it involves scotty but it speaks a lot to you know how really just a different sport tiger woods was playing for so long so this week right now scotty scheffler's world ranking point average is just above 10 points and he's got a pretty healthy separation between himself and number two, as you can imagine, winning four of your last six tournaments, including a major in a WGC, right? So after the 2008 U.S. Open, Tiger's average was 21 points per event, which, by the way, more than twice what Scotty is now. So just give you an idea there. And that's not even the peak of what Tiger was at. Phil Mickelson was in second, and he was over 10 points. Phil Mickelson, from 2000 to 2009, had 77 different weeks where his OWGR points average was higher than what Scotty's is this week as number one in the world. And that just speaks to, first of all, Phil's probably underrated. There's probably no doubt about that because of the context of when he played. But second, like that's just how far ahead Tiger Woods had put himself with all those big victories and all those big events. And it's just not something that we're going to see happen very often. So yeah, no, Scotty has a great opportunity. Like that's one of my questions. We were, we were going to talk about um, storylines a little bit later. Is this, is this the peak? Is this the top of the run? Like, is this, did he crest with this awesome win at the Masters? And if he did, fantastic, man. Like, if we don't ask anything more, that's an unbelievable job. But 
the question is like, or is he wheeling himself into one of these seven wins, maybe win another major this year? I mean, he's talked about how much he loves Southern Hills. Like, you know, is are we talking about that kind of season going forward? Yeah, that that is a great question. Um, you know, on another point, something that I love about the stats that you find is what I've what I've come to think of as the sense tiger principle where when something really unusual happens or somebody does something really unusual it's it's it, you know often there is the statement this hasn't happened since oh tiger didn't in 2004 <laughs> like well i will um, say too that makes when something happened that tiger didn't do yes. that's where i get really fired up that's so. the 1960 thing with arnold palmer uh you mentioned earlier the the four wins before the masters was it yeah four wins including the masters leaving Augusta National, right, in that season. And so last year when Colin Morikawa won the Open Championship, I had another one of those moments because like, oh, man, he did something Tiger hadn't done yet. So Colin won his second major in just his eighth major championship start, which, one, that speaks to obviously how well he's played since he's turned professional in this really rapid ascent, and he's a transcendent talent with his irons and all those things you can talk about. The other part of that is he didn't have the amateur career that gave him starts in the major championships like Jack Nicklaus, like Tiger Woods. So in turn, you end up with this unique kind of statistical cocktail where he's the first guy to win two majors in his first eight starts since, drum roll, Bobby Jones. And you come up with one of those notes and you're like, <laughs> anytime I can go back before Tiger and even like before Jack and you can get an answer like that, it, I don't know. That's something I get really fired up about because usually the answer is just is, is since Tiger, which is fun as that is because there's – I can I still dig into Tiger Woods numbers and we we won't fully understand like how dominant the guy was um until 50 60 years from now I don't think. Um well you mentioned Colin Morikawa. He, he had yet another good finish at the Masters. How good has Colin Morikawa been and how much are we seeming to underrate him at least in terms of excitement level about what he's doing? Yeah, um, I mentioned the Bobby Jones stat. Um, there's another one I looked at. So he now has a top five finish in all four major championships, and he's only 25 years and change. Um, fourth youngest guy to do that. But even more impressive is that he did it in nine major championship starts, and nobody has done that before in the history of golf. So, um, I mean, obviously the Masters started at 34, so you kind of look at like post-World War II when you're talking about contextually there. Um, but it just speaks to one. He, if you look at the career averages for strokes gain approach since they started tracking in 2004, it's Tiger, and then there's a little gap, and there's Colin, and then there's a big gap, and everybody else. Um, that's how consistent and great his iron play has been since he turned professional. Like there's other, obviously there's other elite approach players in the sport. Justin Thomas, Victor Hovland come to mind. Uh, Russell Henley the last 18 months or so, um, but Colin puts himself in position everywhere he goes with that tee to green game to be, you know, a major contender to win every time he goes somewhere. And really, you know, if he's a little bit above average with his putter, like he was at Royal St. George's last year, there's a pretty good chance he's the best player on, in, in the field. So um, I think we do underrate him. Um, I'm interested to see, you know, there are a lot of guys who have these bursts of big success, right? Um, you know, whether it was Jordan Spieth in 2015, whether it was, Jason Day at the end of 15 and then into 16, and Day was a little bit older. But there's these waves of like 18 to 24 months where guys play their best golf that they ever would. You could say Dustin Johnson in 2017. I'd argue his best golf was probably when he won three in a row and then went to the Masters and, and slipped on the stairs. You know, I'm just saying like there's these these bursts of 18 to 24 months where guys play their best golf, right? Um, the question is, can you sustain it over five, ten? Tiger's case 15 years um, and turn yourself into one of these like iconic players because there's guys who show the potential, the underlying statistics, the performances in big events, and they come in these bursts. But can you stretch it out and turn into something, you know, sustainable over a long period of time? It's, it's human nature not to. And there's a reason why it doesn't happen very often because it's incredibly rare. But that's the question I have for Morikawa moving forward is, um, are we seeing a guy who can be number one in the world for a long period of time, win six, seven majors, which by the way, you know, there's only a few guys in the history of the sport to do that. Or is this, you know, his peak golf and maybe there's a lull coming and then he refines it. You know, you know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is such an interesting question. It's one I've been thinking about a lot lately, one that we discussed earlier this week on on the podcast about sustained greatness. And, you know, and one way to see Tiger's career, too, is not just that he sustained the exact same level of greatness throughout his career, but that he put together a few different stretches of absolutely incredibly dominant golf. You know, uh, you, you had one of those, of course, famously in 2000, but the one that people sleep on a little bit is the one that happened later in the 2000s between about 2005 to uh, 2008 or so when he was again, so dominant. And that's kind of what pushes his career over the top in the modern era is that ability to patch together these different, uh, series of great finishes of great wins and, you know, they didn't happen constantly throughout his career. He just had those bursts and he had more than one of them. And that's the thing about the players recently is that most of them who are really transcendent talents have had kind of one of those bursts. And then we haven't heard from them in the same way. So it's really interesting. Is Morikawa that guy? Like one of the ones you're talking about, I just pulled up is that people don't talk about enough is end of 2007 into 2008 with Tiger before that kind of was capped off with the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. He ended 07, won Bridgestone, won the PGA, won the Deutsche Bank, won the BMW, won the Tour Championship, and then he started the next year, and I was in a sports center meeting in 2008, and we had a legitimate discussion, and the topic was, will Tiger have a perfect season when every <laughs> tournament he plays in, which is one of the most preposterous things you could possibly ask. But at the time, he had started the season win, win, win. So it wasn't that preposterous at the time. And then he ended up in 08. I think it was six starts, four wins, second and fifth. So, I mean, yeah, the, the point is, point being like, there, that's another, that's another echelon. And that's another, you know, the, the unbelievable golf, like Jason, I keep going back to Jason and it's unfortunate he's had the injuries he's had, but the golf he played, Jason Day played when he won, going into the PGA, winning the PGA that fall. And then the next spring, winning the Players' Championship and, like, I think Bay Hill, too. Like, can you do that, like, a bunch of different times? And that's the separating factor between, you know, guys who get to number one for 30 weeks and a guy who's there for, well, 700 or whatever Tigers was. All right, well, let's touch briefly on Roy McIlroy's final round at the Masters. That was another big storyline coming out of the week, aside from Scotty Scheffler, aside from Tiger Woods' comeback. Um, Roy McIlroy's final round was was pretty incredible, what were some of the things that you found about that and how good it was? Uh, the first thing that stood out is uh, there's a <laughs> his strokes gained around the green and obviously he hold out his last shot from the bunker and that benefits it a lot. But he was unbelievable around the greens. Like I think he gained like at least five and a half strokes around the green in that final round. And that's a thing that you can't necessarily bottle up and take with you you know, week in, week out. It was a magic quality to it, right? And I know that sounds kind of corny, especially when we're talking about Augusta National, but there really was, and it went beyond the hole out from the bunker. It was, it was, you know, something he did throughout his round where, you know, part of me, the pessimist in me watching Rory at Augusta National, and I'm, I've, I've loved watching Rory's career, and he's, he's fantastic and is an all-time great player. Um, but you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? Like the charge is coming, and like I'm waiting for like, He's going to miss this seven foot over par. Like it's going to happen. Like it's just, it just felt like it's, and he didn't. He kept making them. He kept going. And then when he jars that shot from the bunker, you're just like, what did I just watch? Like, and, and for a second, even though he was 10 back to begin the day, you start feeling like this is going to happen. Like Scotty's going to rinse one or something down the stretch. And this is going to be the magic end to the Grand Slam. And it's going to be historic and everything. Unfortunately, it doesn't end up happening. Scotty plays great. Good for him, you know. But you let yourself think of those things when you watch something as unbelievable as that. So, yeah, strokes gained around the green were were fantastic in that final round. He had a really good week with his approach play. Um, I know that immediately whenever Rory struggles anywhere, the first thing people point to is his putter. But the reality is, since we have strokes gained data at the Masters, which is just since 2015, um, he was the, the detrimental you know, part of his numbers didn't come from the putter. It was his approach play. He was actually positive with his putting in that span and bad with his approach play. And then when he finishes runner-up, best ever finish of the Masters this year, he was ninth in the field in strokes gained approach. So he really turned that around. Um, yeah, he putted pretty well too for the week. So um, from a numbers perspective, it was all very promising and he was able to finally put it together. I really hope at some point I can put to rest 
if you're a follower of mine, have been for a while, the Rory McIlroy first round in majors uh, versus rounds two, three, and four because the number just keeps growing and growing. And Rory shot 73 to open this week. And I think I don't have it right in front of me. Yeah, I think it was 73 73 to open. Right. And then when he goes out and, and you know, nearly and she ties the lowest score, final round score in the history of the Masters Sunday, you're able to expand it further. But I think he's like 35 over in round one and 60 something under in rounds two through four. It's just something unbelievable. And it, look, it's a, it, it's something that expands over time with plus and minus in relation to par. And you can argue about how substantial it is, but that's a lot of shots per round. Like that's, that's a substantial difference. So um, it was great to see that moment of joy though, just from a human non numbers perspective, just elation at that place for, for a guy that's had a lot of uh, bad Sundays there. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and uh, let's hope that it, that it carries over into, into future experiences. Cause it's always more exciting when, Rory is involved and in form. Um, so to wrap things up here, you've mentioned already a couple of your big questions for the rest of the season here. Um, one was about Scotty Scheffler and, and his ability to sustain this form, whether you know what he's done recently is the peak or whether he can reel off a, a few more uh, performances like this over the course of the year. You also mentioned Colin Morikawa and whether his the uh, you know sustained greatness proves to be on an all-time level or more on the kind of 2010s level that we have seen recent uh, seen recently. Um, so. Uh, you know, is there more that you want to say about those storylines or do you have some other questions that you're asking about the rest of the season that you want to get into? I feel like the, the, those are the, uh, non Saudi branch of the storylines. I have a morbid curiosity of what one of these live events is going to look like. Um, it, it, it just keeps kind of strangely progressing along. It looks like there might actually be a golf tournament at some point, but, what does it look like? Where is it aired on television? Is it aired on television? Like, there's just a the logistical. Just as someone who works in the industry, I just kind of want to see. There's a little bit of a morbid curiosity. Like, what does it look like? And is it Lee Westwood and seventy dudes from the Asian tour? Like, I I, I don't really know what it's all going to constitute. So after we've talked, you know, we've talked ad nauseum in the golf space about this, and I guess we're going to continue to um, as it's still a thing. But I just want to see kind of what what does it really look like and what kind of impact does it have um, if it actually goes forward. Um, another question I have, I'm really interested to see what Brookline looks like for the U.S. Open. Um, you know, the last couple of venues uh, have been kind of familiar places, right? Um, Pebble Beach, we see Torrey Pines every year for the farmers. Um, I'm interested to see what Brookline looks like because it's... Anytime they go to a course we're kind of unfamiliar with, we get some surprises, right, from the USGA, whether that was Chambers Bay in 15, Aaron Hills a couple years later. So, I mean, having you know, my memories of, of Brookline are just, you know, David Duvall's awkward celebration at the Ryder Cup and the shirts that the guys wore and Justin Leonard going nuts. And I don't remember a lot about the golf course. It was, I mean, I was in junior high school when they played there. So um, I'm curious about that. Um, the, I, I want to see Southern Hills post renovation. Uh, I think that's really interesting. Um, uh, the other thing too, that I'm really looking forward to the 150th open at St. Andrews, I really hope is just an enormous like global celebration of the sport. It's a really great opportunity to go back to golf's true home on this really cool anniversary. Um, it's been pushed back, you know, obviously we missed a year because of the pandemic, uh, at the open, um, I want to see, we talked about Colin, but you look at the Americans to win the open championship in back-to-back years and it reads like the greatest players of all time. It's Tiger, it's Jack, it's Watson, it's Palmer, it's Hagen, it's Bobby Jones. Like it's, that's a list you want to be a part of. And he has a great opportunity to do that too. Um, those are the things I'm kind of most interested in. And then obviously just what the next step is for, for Scotty Scheffler. And the question that I posed earlier, like, is this the, the crest, the peak, or, or is there something more to come? Cause He's obviously talented enough to just be getting started. When you look at the old course at St. Andrews, is there anything that crosses your mind from a, you know, modern pros kind of course management perspective or from the point of view of what skills will be prioritized at the course, you know, when it's put up against the modern game? Obviously, you know, St. Andrews is not a course that we haven't visited for a while. We, we've seen modern pros play there but you know going back there it's it's always a question that's on my mind how is this course that has been around forever going to play for these guys 
please let the wind blow. Please, <laughs> you're crossing please your fingers right now. Man. I don't want. Yeah, yeah, this is not a visual medium. I'm not very. Yeah. Um, yeah, please let the wind blow. I, I don't need to see. No one needs to see our beloved St. Andrews have 26 under in a playoff. Like it does. We don't need Kapalua out there. You know. Um, I, look, that's the biggest question because obviously, you know, it, it's it's not a modern. It's not set up for guys with carbon wood tailor-made drivers, right? Like it's it's just not. It's just not built to withstand that. Its defense is the elements. And, um, you know, the mystique of the place is a little bit to say for it. But in what's such a, what should be a great celebration for the sport, that's always my chief concern whenever they play a course like St. Andrews is that this thing is so significant in the history of our game. And I really don't want to see it torn to shreds by, by, with no weather. Now, hopefully, you know, we get, we get some wind, we get some elements, we get a, we get a proper open, as they'll say. Um, and that, that, that's always my chief concern going into St. Andrews, because, um, if you, if you don't have that, uh, it looks a lot like, like me in college playing Tiger Woods 07 on the Xbox in Columbia, Missouri, and just <laughs> shooting 34 under par when no one needs to see that in real life. I'm with you there. All right. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll bring you back soon. Uh, appreciate it. Everybody follow Justin Ray golf on, on Twitter. Lots of good stuff there. Um, have a good week man thanks thanks man you guys do great work thanks for having me on this episode of the fried egg podcast was edited by Meg Atkins thank you Meg if you've been enjoying the podcast please leave a rating and review in iTunes that's a simple and very effective way to support what we're doing thanks for listening